Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, compassion, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm very happy to be speaking with Roshi Joan Halifax. Roshi Joan Halifax, PhD, is a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and pioneer in the field of -of end-of-life care. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a founding teacher of the Zen Peacemaker Order and founder of Prajna Mountain Buddhist Order. Her work and practice for more than four decades has focused on engaged Buddhism. Her books include The Fruitful Darkness, Being with Dying, and her new book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Standing at the Edge. Roshi, I'm so glad to have you here on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Welcome. Happy to be here, Michael. And also, it's wonderful to be here in the Bay Area. Isn't it gorgeous? It's not only gorgeous, it's far out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What are you noticing at the far out level of the Bay? So much cultural diversity. Uh, Yesterday I took a a walk and ended up in the midst of Chinese New Year and actually walked the street several times, just milling in this huge crowd, listening to various dialects of Chinese being spoken, seeing all ages. The most amusing thing was, uh, we talk about commodification of Buddhism in the West, but seeing the booth where a Buddhist monk is selling prayers. So I, you know, I thought, well, that's um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. uh, Asia is no... Stranger. Yeah, no stranger to commodification of Buddhism. Hardly. But it brought me, actually, a lot of joy to be in such a concentrated community of people of all ages who were non-Western, non-Anglo, and who were enjoying their own culture so much. And, you know, um, it felt safe. That was one of the things that I was appreciating. Sometimes there's an intolerance of difference in our society, and um, here there was a lot of consistency and a lot of fun. It's so beautiful. That community has been in San Francisco for maybe 150 years. Yeah. Yeah, well, they, I think they built the Big Sur Highway. That's right, yeah. Among many other things. And also they faced enormous discrimination. And somehow the, you know, sort of Chinese character, which we're certainly aware of these days, culturally, socially, economically, has been a, a source of enormous strength and determination. So who knows what the... Uh, outcome is going to be of China's relationship with the West. We can hope it is a positive one. Roshi, you have a new book out, or coming out, called Standing at the Edge. And I suspect that your willingness to come on my podcast has something to do (laughs) (laughs) with wanting to talk about that book. Now, I've seen an advanced copy of it, and it's quite an impressive document going into such issues as engagement and compassion and empathy in the most difficult situations, how to bring those qualities into war zones and, you know, famine relief and so on. 
And it's actually a manual as far as I can tell. Like there's a lot of practice and a lot of really clear understanding of how to do it. But it's not a how-to book. Mm. I I think it's um, a book that's edgier, if you will, than a how-to book. And what's the name of the book? It's called Standing at the Edge. So it's edgier, and it's Standing at the Edge. Right. Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. Great title. So what's your intention in publishing this book? You know, I've had the privilege of sitting with dying people over many decades and working in the penitentiary system, having students who are clinicians, uh, human rights activists, politicians, lawyers, and bearing witness to the suffering that they encounter when they are engaged in service to others. And I also uh, know that experience myself. Mm where my altruism has not always been balanced. And I began to look at some of the powerful human virtues that make for health in our society, including altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement, and have recognized that there are shadows to each of these. And those shadows cause suffering, not only for the individuals who are you know, going through, for example, or caught in the grip of pathological altruism, but it can harm those whom we're endeavoring to serve, or even the institutions that we're serving in, or the countries that we're trying to serve, or empathic distress, where we're in too great a resonance physically, emotionally, cognitively with another. We're too fused. And we experience empathic distress and empathic overload. And integrity breaks down and we experience moral suffering. Or when respect is absent and disrespect is present. Or burnout, um, which is the shadow side of engagement. So I I wrote this book for a number of reasons, one of which is that um, we, we live in a really fraught time. There's uh, extraordinary challenges and opportunities in our world today. And um, how do we use these positive and inherent qualities of the human character in a way that is skillful? How do we deploy them in a way that's uh, skillful? And how do we be aware that when we fall over the edge into from altruism into pathological altruism, that compassion is actually the lever or the medium of transformation of these shadow states? So that's the core thesis in the book, that compassion, which has not been so well understood in Western society, has phenomenally enough no downside in spite of what many people feel like even the term compassion fatigue. sounds like compassion can waste you. But what's happening in social psychology and neuroscience now is fascinating in the sense that it is validating what contemplatives have long known, that compassion, like wisdom, these are two qualities that are interconnected that are fundamental to our human nature. This is 
the angle on the book that I think is so deep and unusual and fascinating is instead of being a text that merely tells people to be compassionate and altruistic and respectful, you're showing how even individuals who have a very deep relationship with those qualities or a deep commitment to bringing those qualities forward can often fall into the shadow side of it. And that's a very unusual and I think a much needed thing to bring out. Um, it's edgy. It's edgy, yeah. It's so. It's like a, a beautiful text for people whose work and life is really about serving others. And what I saw going through the book is it's how you can make sure you're staying in the healthy expression of those virtues. So you're talking about compassion. What would you say is the shadow side of compassion? You know, my perspective is very simple in relation to compassion, that it doesn't have a shadow side. Mm -hmm. But it's often conflated with empathy. And it's not to say that empathy isn't essential, because clearly a world without empathy is a world where we are dead to each other. But it is also not uncommon that we tilt from healthy empathy into empathic distress, mm. into over-identification with people, and not just people who are suffering. A really unusual example of this, Paul Bloom wrote about this in his book on empathy, is how in the Second World War, an entire nation of Germans identified cognitively with Hitler where they were experiencing, they were kind of looking out through Hitler's eyes and adopted his view. And that's a kind of mind-reading or cognitive empathy. And um, the result is that there are behaviors that arise out of this attitude or view or way of seeing that were horrendously destructive. Mm. And so perspective-taking or mind-reading is important. It's important to be able to see how others see the world. It's, it's really it's fundamental, essential, yeah. really. Yeah. But when the experience of cognitive empathy swamps our own integrity, then we're faced with, and others are faced with, serious consequences, like what happened in the Second World War in the Third Reich. Hmm. Now, you are, I think, contrasting empathy with compassion in the way that, for example, Tanya Singer does, where mm -hmm. empathy is feeling what another person feels or cognitively sort of seeing their worldview mm -hmm. like they see their worldview. Right. And then compassion is actually the motivation to help them, if I'm not mistaken, or please correct me. Well, you know, when I began to look at compassion as a subjective experience, I, I recognized that there were certain features characteristic of compassion, and they include attention, our capacity to be able to actually lend our attention to another. And having attentional balance allows us to perceive things with more clarity. And then um, prosociality, and that is our capacity to feel concern, um, kindness, appreciation, gratitude, a whole range of prosocial states. You know, one can't be antisocial and compassionate at the same time, in a way as a sort of behavioral oxymoron. And then one's intention. It takes intentionality that is based in the aspiration to end suffering, which is, from the Buddhist perspective, the cultivation of bodhicitta, I vow to awaken in order to end the suffering of all beings. 
which is grounded in this experience of moral character. You know, being able to have both moral sensitivity to actually sense what is happening not only in our own subjectivity, but in the intersubjectivity of the whole realm of our knowing and experiencing. And then it takes moral nerve. In other words, the aspiration to end suffering takes moral nerve. It takes commitment, determination, strength, the courage to actually uh, step into the mandala of suffering and to work it. Sometimes stepping into it means doing nothing. Sometimes it means, you know, doing something really big, or maybe it's something just very subtle. Maybe it's just a touch of your hand to the hand of another. But it takes a kind of moral nerve. And this term, by the way, was a term that I picked out of a text from Joan Didion, the Mm -hmm. author Joan Didion. I really love moral nerve. It's a strong back, equanimity, determination. And it also, compassion um, involves insight, not only insight into our own subjectivity and capacities and where we're triggered, but insight into the, again, this is out of the work of social psychology and Daniel Batson, Tanya Singer, uh, Nancy Eisenberg, that um, if we don't distinguish self from other, we can become overwhelmed from our experience of empathy. So this is kind of contrary to the non-dual perspective, which is your thing, of course. (laughs) But from the point of view of social psychology and how empathy can be healthy is that from one point of view, it's very important to distinguish self from other. Like when I was in Nepal, In the room where a little girl who was severely burned, her wounds were being debrided, and I had this deep identification with her, and she was suffering so much. And at a certain point, I had to make that distinction. I am not her. Yeah. Otherwise, I was going to pass out to a dead faint right on the floor. And so, you know, that capacity to make that distinction is a kind of meta-awareness that allows us to um, both feel the suffering of another, but also at the same time to realize I am not that other. Yes. And, you know, another aspect of insight that is very important, His Holiness the Dalai Lama always talks about this, you know, saying, he says, you know, all of beings want to be happy. Even a, a microorganism on a sugar gradient, they're looking for something nourishing. They, they don't want to run away from the sugar gradient. They're going up it. And even in working in the prison system with men who have murdered others, I, you know, I worked on death row and in maximum security as a volunteer for six years with really difficult, complicated human beings. But I recognized no matter how terrible their crimes were, the terrible things they did to other people, rape and murder, and it was all rape and murder, (laughs) that they wanted to be happy too. And so the insight into all beings want to be happy. And then the final piece in this suite of elements, which are all trainable elements, Michael, which is really powerful. Mm. Well, I want to mention one other thing, Michael, and that is compassion entails this capacity that we have to give our best, even when our best is only 20% at that moment. We've given our best. 
But it also involves its complement, not being attached to outcome. Some people don't get that at all. What are you talking about? But it is that how do you give your best and at the same time knowing you really can't control outcome? In fact, if you try to control it, often more harm arises. Then the last feature that I identified, Michael, in this suite of features which comprise compassion, and I look at compassion as a complex, dynamical system, the emergent process of these suite of features that I've just outlined is compassion. But this last feature is embodiment. Mm. Whether, you know, we're in a wheelchair or like Stephen Hawking, you know, the body has dropped away, but still we're in the body. And even though Hawking can barely move, I believe that he is thinking about our operating from the body of the whole world. Mm. So his insights, his kind of cosmic and political insights are those that relate to his bodhisattva's heart, which still beats, and is about, you know, how do we end suffering? So embodiment is an important feature in compassion because it involves as well not just our somatic experience, and not everybody, like Hawking as an example, he's, you know, he's kind of like a brain that has very little body left, But his concern about not just the farthest star, so to speak, but about our intimate human experience on this earth is undeniable. So how do we enact compassion in the world? And so if we have a situation of empathic distress, we're overwhelmed with our empathy for another, how can we use compassion to counteract that situation? So in the outlining of these features of compassion, we begin really with attention and to see how our attention is easily hijacked by ungrounded emotional reactivity to that which we're facing. It's really interesting. I often have the experience of uh, feeling the distress of animals that I'm presented with, Mm -hmm. a bird or a dog or something, and just how, to me, they're people and and just like anybody else, and they have such a beautiful presence. And then in connection with them, you see their suffering, and it's very intense. And yet that's just pure empathy. So I'm curious how, you know, one would or I would begin to change that. So you're saying the first step is to have just attention to that emotional uprising. It's first noticing, you know, and that's what we're trained to do in meditation. Particularly when we're in the beginning phases of meditation, we notice when our thought stream, so to speak, has been hijacked to Chicago or Birmingham or New York or the latest spat we've had with our good friend. So it's that capacity to notice. In the case of, for example, you're sitting with your dog, which is, for many of us, has been the most undefended relationship <laughs> we've had. Yeah. You know, here's this this being. I mean, you know, I'll, I might be on Facebook and I'll see a, a little video of a dog and I can just feel my whole sort of heart melt. Yeah. Just, just the same way when I see, you know, a picture of a baby. You know, it's a very undefended relationship. And if you see, you know, a creature who's suffering 
And then there's this identification with the creature, and you become very upregulated and vulnerable, and you have taken on the suffering of the dog or the baby. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, um, you experience secondary trauma. You're being traumatized or vicarious trauma. You're being traumatized either by hearing about or witnessing the suffering of another. And so this is where attention becomes really important because if we pay attention to what's happening or lend our attention, rather, to what's happening in the body and we start to notice the response of the body to witnessing suffering, you know, suddenly our blood pressure drops or it goes up, suddenly our gut tightens, our shoulders go up. We begin to have a kind of fight, flight, or freeze response, fear response to the presence of suffering. And then our aspiration to be of service hopefully engages, and we invite ourselves to get grounded, to make the distinction between self and other. Remember that we're there to end suffering, not to add to the quotient of it. So... Feeling the other being suffering isn't necessarily helping in any way. Well, I think it does help, but feeling too much doesn't help because we move into overwhelm. Hmm. So, you know, Michael, one of the things I did after I was this distinguished visiting scholar at the Library of Congress, where I had a chance to do this heuristic map of compassion. What I wanted to do, because of working with so many people in the end-of-life care field and also in uh, relation to issues of justice and education and so forth, I felt like it would be useful to take this map and to develop an actual process that one could deploy or engage at the moment of encountering suffering as a means to cultivate compassion. And so I developed this process called GRACE. And it's a mnemonic standing for gathering your attention, recalling your intention, attending or attuning to yourself, which includes your physical experience, your emotional experience, your cognitive experience. So you can, one, get grounded to see your biases, the filters that are potentially distorting how you perceive the other, and then attuning to the others physically, emotionally, cognitively, body, heart, and mind. And from that perspective, then, the sea of grace is considering what will really serve. Mm. Looking deeply Using the information coming from your body, your heart, your mind, and what you've learned through allowing the experience of another to be included into yours, and from that, consider what will really serve. And then the E of Grace is engage. When you know you have that insight into what will serve, we engage. And sometimes it's like a micro moment, but sometimes engagement happens in a slower way, we'll, we'll say, you know, I, I need some time to really look at this with you and to see what, what is really going to serve here. And then the second part of the E of grace is to end. How do you bring into conclusion the experience of compassion? 
You might need to ask for forgiveness. You might need to express appreciation. You might need to summarize and reflect. So, you know, how do you end interpersonally or, if that's not appropriate, internally a connection where compassion has been actualized? So that final E is like a closing of the compassion event. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So have you been engaging this strategy specifically in your work recently yourself? I know you were just in Burma, I believe. Actually, uh, we were working, we brought the Nomads Clinic to refugee camps of Rohingya people in Kathmandu. Mm -hmm. So no, not in Burma nor Bangladesh. Hundreds of men, women, and many children have gone north out of these camps, a very difficult journey through Bangladesh and made their way into Kathmandu. And there are these refugee camps where our clinic has served. And let me just ask you, changing gears slightly, about Uh that uh, experience. What would you like to say about what's going on there? Well, Michael, I didn't realize that there were Rohingya refugees in Kathmandu. We go to Nepal every year with our nomads clinic and work with Nepali clinicians and Western clinicians and serving people in very remote areas of the Himalayas where there's no access to health care. And I've been doing it since 1980. And it's a great experience. And we have a team of really exceptional Nepali doctors, nurses, physical therapists, acupuncturists, Tibetan healers, Tibetan doctors, this fantastic team of people, dentists, Nepali dentists, Dr. Purbu Dorji, wonderful people. Before we go out into the field, we take our Western clinicians with our Nepali clinicians as like after the earthquake in Nepal a few years ago, uh, we went to a refugee camp or a camp where people whose villages had been destroyed and they resettled in Kathmandu for a couple of years. And we served in those camps as a kind of check-in with our clinicians. And so last year we went to these Rohingya refugee camps and I had been asked by one of our Nepali colleagues to help with medical services and other things. So we paid for surgeries and we supported clinics for people in the camps, but we hadn't gone until the end of August. Really, it was at the climax of the genocide in uh, Myanmar. And it was truly shocking to listen to these people speak about what was happening in their villages, to look at their uh, mobile phones with uh, videos of their relatives being shot and burned. Uh, I mean, it's just overwhelming. So we have been in the process since that time of feeding everybody in those camps since August and also providing health care, providing clothing and blankets and so on. But as I said, my initial experience, Michael, was of overwhelm. Hmm. You know, I'm watching this video being sort of, you know, held up to me as I'm in this hot tin shack in the middle of the camp with three men, one of whom had tears streaking down his cheeks and, you know, the man in the center showing me this video of what was happening in his village. And 
I also realized as this feeling of horror was rising inside of me that, again, I was there to serve. Uh, So getting grounded, remembering why I was there, and engaging grace at that moment. Mm. And how did they respond to you as a Buddhist cleric in a situation where they're being persecuted by a nominally Buddhist government? So that's a great question, Michael. Um, I felt part of the reason that for me personally it was important to go to those camps was to apologize. Mm. It was a personal apology. I can't apologize on behalf of Buddhism. I'm just one person. But I am a Buddhist. And this violence is being perpetrated by Buddhists. And so, you know, I had on my Raksu, I had on my robe, and the people in the camp, a number of them spoke to what they had been subjected to. And then I was asked to speak, and I expressed deep gratitude for them allowing me to come into the camp for Rebecca Solnit was there, by the way, um, the doctors on our team were there. And all of us uh, shared with me the sense of profound shame and remorse and grief that these Muslim people who had no place to go had actually fled from a Muslim country as well, Bangladesh, because they were subjected to abuse there, to Nepal, which is very poor country. It's the second poorest country after Afghanistan. Mm. But there's less discrimination there, uh, more respect and inclusion. I just, I apologized. I felt um, ashamed. It's hard to grasp how, for me personally, how this ethnic cleansing could be carried out by Buddhists. But if we look at what happened in Cambodia, you know, we have to take responsibility when, in the name of our religion, the acts of horror happen. And so, yeah, I was grateful that we have been able as Buddhists to do something. And Javar, one of the men in the camp said, you know, in Myanmar, Buddhists are killing us. Here in Nepal, Buddhists are healing us. I was very touched by what he said. And at the same time, this is, you know, just a small, you know, a drop in a great ocean of suffering, a drop of goodness in a great ocean of suffering. And I don't know, you know, how the aversion that people in Myanmar feel toward the Rohingya, how that will resolve. But I hope uh, we can help in its resolution. Hmm. Now, you have been a scientist for more than 50 years, probably 55 years or more, medical anthropologist. And it's fascinating to me how these days we're in a milieu of investigation, science investigating Buddhism, science investigating states of mind that are related to meditation. That's been, I would say, kind of a big deal for at least 10 years, you know, with Mind and Life and various work of Richie Davidson and Judson Brewer and really dedicated lab people doing their research. And of course, you've been involved in that with Tanya Singer and everyone as well. 
On the other hand, you have this very unusual and fascinating background working with indigenous shamanic communities who are presenting quite a different worldview than the scientific worldview. I'm curious, to me, one of the most powerful experiences, and and really not just a powerful momentary experience, but an ongoing, continuous presence for me, was a long retreat that I did in the forest, like three months. And after a while, it was very clear that the, you know, the forest and the turkeys and the various creatures there were doing all the work for me. They, they, mm-hmm. they were the, the meditators, you know, and all they had to do was just kind of be with that. And I just finished your book called The Fruitful Darkness, which is more focused in that way on the connection with the earth, the connection with silence and stillness. I'm curious how you see that fitting in in any way to this whole new wave of, you know, science, quote, proving our meditative experience, which, of course, I'm very interested in, you know, apps being used for meditation, this whole very, in a way, speedy and intense (laughs) connection with Buddhism and your practice, one's practice. How do you see the silence and stillness and the earth-focused experience fitting in with that? I'm remembering some words about science in relation to our own subjective experience from Francisco Varela. (laughs) And Cisco felt that the most powerful lab was between our ears. Mm. I think science has been tremendously helpful in validating what practitioners have always known and great teachers of the axial period clearly uh, spoke about, which is the value of investigating our subjectivity, our direct experience. And with the increase of urbanization and now the mind in a way extended through our digital devices, we seem to be further and further away from the natural world, Mm. many of us. In Japan, there's something called forest bathing. And it's just the value of going into the natural world where you're in the less speedy context of a greater, less constructed subjectivity than, say, San Francisco, where we are today. And that somehow being in the forest or, you know, now we're looking at the value of being next to the ocean has positive effects on the nervous system. I mean, in the Pali Canon, one of the prescriptions that the Buddha gave for practice is find a quiet place in nature. And yet I was talking with a young friend in Hong Kong who said to me, I've only lived in the concrete world. Mm. And he's excited. He's the brother of one of our clinicians in the Nomads Clinic, and he's going to join us in Dolpo in September. He said, I, I've never you know, been in the wilds. And he's really you know, nervous and excited because he knows that his nervous system will change. Or like a wonderful Japanese monk practitioner from Fukui who came to do a vision fast with me maybe 20 years ago. And I asked him about what his experience in the natural world was. And he said, 
Well, I've been to three baseball games. <laughs> <laughs> Those are outside, I Yes, guess. they are outside, but... <laughs> so the challenge that we're facing at this time is the destruction of the natural world. And the natural world also seems to be rearing its head up from our consumption of goods in terms of climate change, you know, with hurricanes and desert, desertification. desertification. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we're in a kind of tipping point, as mm. Bill McKibben calls it, where climate change is threatening civilization. At the same time, we're being asked to wake up and take responsibility and, and to actually see if we can reverse the habits of mind that make forest bathing impossible because we're cutting down all the forests or turning our beaches into collection systems for plastic. We're at a time where we have to, I feel, take full responsibility for the changes that we're incurring and to think about, you know, what we're leaving for our children, but also how can we create the context where we value the natural world and can allow ourselves not to be threatened by it or turn it into a commodity, but to go there to be healed. And from your perspective as both a Buddhist teacher and a shamanic practitioner or healer, how can we do that most effectively, most of us, let's say someone living here in San Francisco who wants to really begin to make that connection more explicit and meaningful in their life? Is it as simple as, you know, go sit on the beach or? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, walk up Mount Tam, follow the trails out to the headlands. But also, I think that, you know, because there's so many people who have access to education to become more aware of cause and effect and to see that what practice can do, what meditation practice can do, allow the mind to perceive things uh, more clearly so we understand cause and effect and we begin to regulate our behaviors that are contributing to this dysphoric time. Good. So what are you seeing currently that you would like to direct people's attention towards most poignantly? Michael, I'm really excited about this book. I feel mm. like the book Standing at the Edge doesn't invalidate um, the difficulties that we experience when we fall over the edge but um, gives us a view that our character can be strengthened through catastrophe. And that it's not like a situation when, for example, we are suffering from empathic distress, where we feel our world is collapsing internally and we feel aversion toward facing suffering. We actually look at that collapse and say, ah, this is a time for a deep exhale. Mm -hmm. Letting go, taking care of. It's a kind of mindfulness bell. I think we're hearing a big mindfulness bell at this time. Not simply about taking a backward step, to quote Zen Master Dogen, but the value of stopping, the value of inquiry, 
of turning our attention not only into our own subjectivity, but creating the means for our own subjectivity to be radically inclusive, to include others, and to be able to actually modulate our experience of the experience of others in a way that we don't become sick. We don't become ungrounded. We don't experience collapse as a result of radical inclusion. And when we do, we use that time initiatically. We use that time as a way to look deeply and ask, what have I learned here? What has served? How can I serve a world that is so fragile, so vulnerable, How can I see where the points of resilience are and begin to help to sort of build capacity in the world instead of draw capacity from it? Something I encounter quite often is practitioners of Buddhism or some meditation tradition who seem to have retreated from this edge of engagement that you're really promoting into a kind of cocoon of nothing mattering, or in my opinion, it seems almost nihilistic withdrawal. I'm curious what you would say to someone who was in that place. You know, there are many Dharma doors. I would say that is one of them. Not everybody has the makeup to be so-called on the front lines to engage in social transformation. And I also think that there are phases that we go through. There are times when we're actually too sensitive and unable to uh, metabolize the shocks of society, that the exhale is really important at times of deep internal practice or of isolation or hermiting are very generative. And if we don't take advantage of those times, sometimes they're given to us. Like, for example, we become ill. because of overexposure to psychosocial and physical toxins. So I don't find fault with anybody who is heaping. I have to heap myself. I have to take that exhale seriously. I have to go to the wilderness in order to allow myself to, you know, press sensitively the restart button. I don't have the internal elasticity to be able to sustain myself healthily in the landscape of suffering. I'm not that kind of enlightened person. (laughs) I have to have the inhale moments, the, the moments of engagement, of taking the breath in and going out into the world, but I also have to have moments of deep letting go. And for some people, it's not moments, it's not days, months, sometimes it's years. And I have to say, I, you know, I respect the different capacities of different individuals. It's not to say, you know, everybody is going to be Wangari Matai planting a million years. Everybody is going to be Fannie Lou Hamer you know, working for SNCC and getting the voter registration happening in the South, you know, 24-7. We all have different makeups, and we have to basically do what is appropriate within the range of our capacities. And part of what the book is about is that, you know, some of us require more of an exhale than others. And it's to learn when that is the case to respect it. Otherwise, pathological altruism unfolds. Mm -hmm. We go over the edge. 
So we live in a pretty exciting time right now. There's a lot of really intense things happening. I was noticing today that the Arctic is 60 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it should be, six zero degrees warmer, and all the political chaos and other. Uh, this weekend, um, I live in West Oakland. You know, three people were shot on my block just randomly. There's a lot to feel overwhelmed about, but I'm curious, what do you feel hopeful about or inspired by currently? Well, I feel hopeful about your equanimity when you talk about <laughs> 60 degrees warmer than it should be or three people on your block were shot. It's not that you're saying this in a dissociated way, but you're noticing. You choose to not put your head in the sand, but to notice the suffering. And you're doing what is appropriate for you about bringing hope into the world. And I love Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, and she's written another one, A Paradise Built in Hell. There are so many examples of people, of communities, of groups, of nations, like Bhutan uh, is a good example, really uh, espousing an ethos of happiness. I feel that the toxic aspects of our society are, in fact, the minority, even though they're the loudest. That there is so much goodness in the current landscape, and that in a certain way, our media is colonizing us with hopelessness. And yet, I feel not colonized by hopelessness. I feel inspired by the many people I meet every single day who are operating from a base of uh, deep integrity. Roshi, thank you so much for coming on the program. It has been my pleasure. Wonderful to see you again, Michael. So good to see you again as well. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. 
By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the DeconstructingYourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at DeconstructingYourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>